Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with Teos Abadia, and we are ready to rock and roll this week, aren't we, Teos? Oh yeah, you're like at a least 85% full Sean Merwin capacity. Uh, feeling a little better, it looks like. I'm I'm feeling great. You know why? Why, Teos? I saved up a bunch of money and I found a way to configure two coupons together on the WizKids store that they never intended to go together, and so I afforded the white dragon head and I hung it up in my gaming room and I love it. And it's so funny to compare my reaction to my family who is kind of like, Hmm. And then I can just see my wife going like, please let this be the last one. And all I can think of is I want another one. <laughs> you know, what would look good right next to that of mind flayer head, right? Yeah. I mean, it red just dragon, needs to happen. Mind flare. Yeah. Beholder in a corner. I mean, Yeah. You know, thank goodness for families that put up with our nonsense. Hmm. Uh, Truly. And speaking of nonsense, we have listeners. And yes, listeners do. often send in questions that are not nonsense. Uh, they send in questions and comments that are very astute. And we are going to get to two of those this week, starting with Tree Monk's Temple via YouTube. Question. Teos mentions at 30.06 that in regards to playtesting, he would like to see playtesting from as wide an audience as possible. When it comes to the 2024 core D&D books, what, are there any examples of rule redesign where you would consider public feedback to not be productive or even counterproductive? Thanks, Chris. Chris, great question. Uh, I think that I'm not going to get into a specific rule yet. What I will say is this. The main risk of running a play test and getting bad feedback mainly rests in who you solicit and listen to the feedback from. If you listen to the feedback from an audience that is not going to end up being the audience for the game that you're creating then that will be counterproductive because you will be appealing to a small subset of your player base that is not your main audience. Uh, yeah. So that's the main risk. And Teos and I have even mentioned that um, on the show before, yeah. where if, if the survey is only being seen by blank gamers, then the results you get are going to be tailored to blank gamers. Right. Right. And and I love Chris's question and, and his YouTube channel. And, and I know, uh, you know, on Treant Monk, you can get just amazing build advice. Right. So so mm -hmm. this is a person who fully understands how to slice and dice. But Chris also understands, you know, new players and wide diverse needs that folks have. And, and, and so do we. And that's the kind of concept. Right. It's like if you ask, uh, you know, all the four year olds you can find whether there should be endless candy, you will receive an incredibly unanimous chorus of yes, give me all the candy, right? And then if you ask their adults, you'll get a very different picture <laughs> and, and right. probably some guilt and sobbing. Um, and so that's the kind of thing, right? And, and to answer the, to my answer to the question would be, you know, there, it isn't about any particular rule that um, public feedback would not be productive, but rather in how you ask the question and yes, to whom, right? How you get that, that question across. And that's a thing that I've had a, a trouble with. I've struggled with 
a lot of these surveys, and it's the reason why I stopped doing the surveys, is they would just ask me things like, you know, rate this on a one to 10 scale. And then they'd conclude, well, everybody wants that because it rated highly. But, but it really depends on how you like, for example, if you ask me to rank all the feet from one to 10, mm-hmm. and then you say these rank really well, clearly people want these feet at first level. I say, you didn't ask me that. Mm-hmm. You had me rank these feet. And there are a lot of ways I could choose to rank that, right? Even today's feats, and I'm going to shut up right after this, but if I say, what do you think of Sharpshooter? Some people will give it a 10 because, oh, that is so powerful. Some people will give it a one because it's broken. Nobody is being asked whether this is good for the game. The the actual question isn't being asked, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what you need to get to. If you want to know whether Sharpshooter is the kind of feat people want more of, you must ask that question and provide the information necessary for that question to come forth right it is a very strong feat some say too strong do you want to see feats like that in the game now we get to the heart of the question that you might be trying to get to right you just tell me to rank sharpshooter who knows what you're getting right and that's that's where i think that it, it it's um it's really about how you ask the questions um where it becomes dangerous if you just conclude that everybody loves something but you didn't really ask the right question well you were drawing incorrect conclusions right or you're drawing the correct conclusion because you know exactly who you want your audience to be. Mm-hmm. You want your audience to be the people who want the most, I don't want to say broken, but you know, the mm-hmm. most powerful options, the most complex game. If you know that's your audience, then you are asking the right question to the right audience and you are getting the answer you want. And based on the surveys that we've seen and based on the places that those surveys have been given, we can assume that that's what wizards wants, right? Wizards yeah, wants this. Maybe. And maybe they don't, maybe they don't realize that that's what they're doing. I don't know. But it's a logical conclusion based on what we've seen. Well, then the question that we ask is, what about new players? Is there going to be an on-ramp for new players that don't include very complex weapon mastery Hmm. uh, options that let you do special things with weapons that you couldn't in the previous edition. Does that serve a new popular, a new player base? Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, who knows? (laughs) Great question. Yeah. Uh, Any other thoughts on that, Teos? It looked like you were going to say something, but did you bite your tongue? You know, we're going to talk about uh, overall company approaches from Hasbro to Wizards to D&D and one of the questions is maybe they've concluded that hey we want a small but really invested base to be into the game of D, not a wide diverse mm-hmm. group in which case this would make a lot of sense to really focus things on you know the people who are going to play with all the bits of the system and to make the system quite intricate even as other rpgs are going simpler that may make sense if you're trying to kind of get at that wedge and really focus on them. Mm-hmm. All right. And we will talk more about uh, Wizards of the Coast and their uh, their outlook and maybe their focus a little bit when we get to the news. But our final question this week is from Andrew Strait 2961 via YouTube. What do you view as a role-playing game's, quote, responsibility to its players with regards to explaining game master best practices and the whys of rule choices uh, within the text itself. I know some games have added asides from the designers to highlight their reasoning behind game mechanical choices. 
uh, and Kelsey definitely provides a decent amount of good info for a new GM in uh, her Shadow Dark game, which we will be talking about in our second segment. I love that she leads with the only rule for the GM being, you make the rules. It's so interesting to think about how a game's written rules, opinions, and philosophy can come together to encourage or discourage gameplay of all types. To what do you owe Shadow Dark's success according to the metric of inspiring so many people to play? Uh, Andrew, great questions. There's a lot in there to unpack. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the very first question. What do you view as the role-playing game's responsibility to its players to explain the best practices and why of rule choices? Um, responsibility is a strong word. Does it have a responsibility? Yes and no. Uh, because it's a role-playing game and not a board game or not any other game. Imagine if you created a game like Monopoly or a game like Sorry, and you were just sort of like wishy-washy about the rules. Yeah, this is how it works. And we're not going to explain how this other part works. You'll figure it out. Maybe we'll leave a rule out. Maybe we'll contradict ourselves with it with a rule. Uh, imagine how well that would go over. And so the game side of role-playing games need those rules. And they need them to, uh, to explain the game in a way where anyone can sit down and play with someone else and not be arguing or confused about the rules however since there is the storytelling role-playing aspect it both lessens the need to be very specific with the rules but it also increases the need to be very specific about the rules uh, for a variety of reasons yes there will be a game master who will make their own rules that's great uh, a game may want to do that in order not to shut out a specific segment of role-playing uh, game uh, fanatics who on are only looking for a certain type of game. However, that, that role-playing game aspect also begs you to explain to the game master the ideas behind the rules. So if they want to change the rules, they understand why and how. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a multifaceted question. Uh, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to let Teos take over for a minute. No, those are great thoughts. Um, you know, I, it made me think of like Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, right? Which on one hand tries to be like, oh, I'm going to be light and fun. And and if you think of original Dungeons and Dragons and where it came from, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, you know, yeah, you want this kind of open imaginative play. And then they're like, here are the weapon speeds. And here are, you know, segments. And here are all these complications, right? And so D&D has long fought itself about how it wants to do this. And it, it tries and, and actually kind of does pretty well, historically speaking, at trying to be in the middle of those worlds, right? On one hand, creating freedom of play. And you can certainly seeing it played, played D&D &D played in a lot of different ways at a lot of different tables, but giving you all this crunch and meat and defining things. And that's the struggle of any game designer. And I agree that it isn't really, I wouldn't use the word responsibility. It's your choice of, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go to nail down how your game should be played? And that can be in specific things like, you know, weapon speed or something like that. Um, but it can also just be in the way that you are explaining things very concretely or are you being very open about it? And it's really easy to start crossing that line. And now you have one page that's written one way and one page that's written the other way. And that will just throw off your audience, right? So you don't, it's not that you have the responsibility to it, but if you can be 
even about it, your game will be clearer to the audience, right? And I think Powered by the Apocalypse is an example of a game that, that when I read it, it really sticks to sort of this higher level, non-detailed way. Um, it's higher concepts kind of throughout. A lot of games do that, and then they add these toothy bits, and that's where it gets a little confusing, right? Um, and, and just in general, if you're writing, there are things that are, so there's that question of detail, but there's also just the question of how you write. Uh, do you put the things in the right order, right? And on our Discord, we've been talking about, should the game start with character creation, or should it start with, here's how the game is played? And it's a chicken and the egg type problem, right? Do one too much and you're over explaining or re-explaining. It's, it's hard. Um, mm -hmm. And we see that in Shadow Dark, right? Shadow Dark will, will tell you a little bit here about darkness, then a little bit there, then an example of play. And you have to kind of add it all together to understand it. But clearly this is working. There are so many parts of Shadow Dark that are so good. People are having a blast with it, right? And, and we'll talk yeah. more about that <laughs> later. Yeah. What, why did Shadow Dark succeed so well? Because it started not with the game, but with the community, mm. right? It started with a community that wanted a certain thing and it built up that community and it gave them what they wanted. And what they wanted wasn't a tightly knit, perfectly balanced game. What they wanted was the very base uh, rule set that they could then tinker with and build on their own. And so that's why we have uh, on occasion gotten a slightly disgruntled response from people saying, play the game, don't just talk about the game as it's written because that's not what it's for. And it's true, right? Mm -hmm. It's true. But we still need to look at the game as a text in some cases, as we talked about last week, to know how to use it. Uh, to know wh where the foundation is that we can then build upon. So the brilliance of Shadow Dark is sort of like the brilliance of AD&D. It, it wasn't perfect. It was it, far from perfect, but it lit a fire under people's imagination and it lit a fire under people's design, um, the, the, the desire to be a designer on their own yeah. for their own game and so that's why it is working so well and that's why a lot of my game design friends swear by it yeah and we'll talk more because about it. it i got to play it yeah. this weekend and right. uh i want to share more about kind of what it was like to, to play another game of shadow dark and why all these things that we're talking about work once you add them all together uh, they, they work mm -hmm. in, often in their separate parts but they really mm -hmm. work when they come together yep and so uh, thank you for those questions. Now let's get to our news and commentary section where there is a lot to cover this week because right after we finished recording last week, Wizards of the Coast dropped a huge post on D&D Beyond talking about everything. Uh, so we're going to go through this step by step. First, they said, hey, here's some free 50th anniversary, uh, 50th year anniversary wallpaper. If you're into digital wallpaper, They've got you covered there. Uh, second thing they talk about was a list of conventions that they would be going to. And it was a pretty extensive list. Uh, and something that, as we've seen over the years, they run hot and cold with. They will be heavily into supporting convention play and special events, and then they will step back and, and 
let other people handle it uh, or be there with the, a minimal of uh, event coverage. And they didn't tell us what they're doing exactly. Right? We get this list of 10 conventions and they say where you will find D&D. Well, D&D yeah. &D as a game is at many more than 10 conventions. So is this D&D &D staff? Mm -hmm. D&D special events, D&D, they say more info is coming. So we'll see. Yeah, that question, we'll, we'll see how they answer it. Mm -hmm. And just being on the convention scene, I know some of the things that are coming. Uh, some of them we know already know about, like mm -hmm. this uh, tournament-style descent into the Lost Caverns of Socant, uh, which is one of the adventures from Quest from the Infinite Staircase. So they're, they're going to, you know, they talk a little bit about that. But I'm sure as these conventions uh, come to bear, we will hear more and more and more about them. Yeah. We also get the release schedule of products going forward, which answers a lot of questions, including when are the 2024 books coming out? Yeah, and I so think we said, Sean, in the past that, you know, this problem on Twitter, the mistake where everything had the same date came from one product being having its date copy pasted onto all the other yeah. images. And that question is answered with the date that we saw being the one for the very first product on the list. <laughs> yep. So that we know to be true. And that first product on the list is Vecna Eve of Ruin coming, coming May 21st of 2024. So only a couple months away. Uh, what is it? It is a high stakes stop the world from ending type adventure for levels 10 to 20. You want your high-level D&D content, you've got your high-level D&D content. And I noted that you, you don't have too many on-ramps onto that. So we have, you know, Curse of Strahd and Strixhaven end at 10th, a couple end at 8th or 12th. So, you know, folks will have to either decide whether they make level 10 characters and start there, or do you bridge from one of those campaigns that ends lower or end it early? You know, there isn't an, an obvious, fantastic uh, on-ramp to it, but, you know. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Do you love all the D&D settings? Do you love just one of the D&D settings? Well, they will have you covered in this product because <laughs> you'll tour the multiverse to revisit beloved settings such as the Forgotten Realms, Eberron, Ravenloft, Dragonlance, and Greyhawk, and team up with Archmages to put an end to Vecna's nefarious plot. Uh, another page here also mentions Planescape and Spelljammer. But we don't know if this is an in-depth look into these settings, if it's just a mention, if it's traveling to the setting for a few mm -hmm. encounters. That still uh, has yet to be seen. If you uh, love some old school tropes, we've got the Rod of Seven Parts as part of the adventure. So many Rod of Seven Parts campaigns out there over the years. Yeah. Uh, what else is it? The 256 pages, a double-sided poster map. More than 30 new monsters from all over the multiverse. Detailed character dossiers with exclusive insights into legendary allies from D&D Adventures over the years. Uh, you can get it on D&D Beyond. And if you do, there is an exclusive bonus adventure called Vecna Nest of the Eldritch Eye, which will prepare you for this uh, final battle with uh, Vecna in the adventure itself. Yeah, I don't love that. I mean, so you can also for pre-ordering, you get, you know, like the dice and the frames and the stuff they usually give you on D&D &D &D Beyond. But this idea of a, an adventure that you only get when you buy it through them, that's exactly what I didn't want to see. Um, so, ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You I, know, I, I want incentives to support my local gaming store. I, I get it. They want to make, but D&D should not thrive on the tiny margin, you know, on the margin difference. It's not tiny, but on the margin difference of selling it directly versus elsewhere. They should want the community and the stable hobby rather than, you know, eking out that little bit of profit. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe that's why they're doing the Lost uh, Caverns of Socanth, which they will be available mm -hmm. at conventions and game and stores. stores. And yeah. so you, I will give them the benefit of the doubt in uh, trying to make this business work, as we will talk about soon, mm -hmm. because we know it's not easy to do that. Uh, uh, we also get on June 18th, the making of the original Dungeons and Dragons from 1970 to 1977. Um, there's a YouTube channel video where Jason Tondro uh, discusses this product. He is a uh, designer at Wizards of the Coast. What do you uh, note about this purchase here, Teos? I mean, it's a great listen. It, it's the kind of video that you don't often get on the channel. It's 38 minutes long, and it goes into a lot of aspects of the of the uh, history of original Dungeons and Dragons, the 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 brown box and white box uh, versions. Uh, and if you follow D&D history, it's great. If not, then it's a good review for it. Um, one thing that I was interesting is just recently, uh, three episodes ago, we discussed how D&D's anniversary might be the last Sunday in January. And they take this kind of almost like a little hard edge stance to say, no, no, that's that's wrong. Uh, we have evidence that printing is still in progress on February 7th. And there's mm -hmm. this postcard they have from Gygax to Arneson. So maybe the second or third week in February. And they talk about the Gygax versus Arneson piece. And it's hard to tell. You know, you're always worried when something's officially from a company. Mm -hmm. Will it be unbiased enough? Right. Will they just report the facts even when the facts may not be friendly to their history, to their company, to their previous company? Um, and but they say they see as both Gygax and Arneson is vital to the game. That's a very diplomatic thing to say. Um, they do say they have the TSR copy of the Blackmore supplement with no notes from Gary Gygax stating who wrote the material on each page. And that despite the fact that Arneson's name's on the cover, that he actually wrote very little based on that. Um, mm -hmm. And they discuss the evolution of the game through different innovations, the Bronstein games, uh, war games that established sort of being acting more like a party, the outdoor survival that gave the wilderness rules um, for chain mail. Um, and just things like the differences from today's play, right? Like the idea of having a dozen players at your table being normal back at the very beginning. Um, they also discussed the gaps in publishing versions. This I thought was a very interesting take that I've kind of not, I don't know if it's a slant or what, but they said that there would be a version of the document released and then a slightly different version would come out. And so groups would be using different versions. And this led to uh D&D being played differently. That's very different than what I've heard the portrayal be, which is that people would photocopy the rules, would combine them with other games, would make their own variants, really more about tinkering rather than some kind of version release being responsible for very different styles of play. But hey, um, you're going to find all kinds of documents, historical documents copied there. Uh, they have original versions of the D&D set, the, 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 the actual original draft, chainmail, many rare documents. They're going to reprint the version that mentions hobbits and Balrogs. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, 
provide a European magazine where Gygax gives an example of play because I guess players found they had no idea. This is relevant to our question <laughs> earlier. People right. had no idea how to play Dungeons and Dragons, right? And so Gary actually writes an article in a European magazine explaining how one should go about this. Um, they gave everything an inclusivity review. So they talk about the and acknowledge the shortcomings of the first versions. And then kind of like three quarters of the way through the video, they kind of out of nowhere say, you know, Todd Kendrick asks, hey, and, and you know, you had help on this project. And, and, and Jason says, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you, you thought to ask me that. And it's that actually John Peterson wrote the actual first draft of all of this book and gave it to Wizards as a product idea. And then they added to it and worked with John. It's like, you know, that could have come up a lot earlier, but at least yeah. it is stated on the product page. I was glad to see. Um, but but that, I think, gives it a, a much different it puts in a different light when this product is is comes from John Peterson. And so. You know, for all we know, that idea of revisiting when D&D's anniversary might be could have come from John himself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually no battle at all going on the way the video portrayed it. It could just be John revising his notes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that will be coming out. And quite soon after that, on July 16th, will be Quests from the Infinite Staircase, an anthology for characters level 1 to 13, bringing six classic D&D adventures to 5th edition. The Infinite Staircase leads to fantastic realms and is home to the noble genie Nafas, who recruits heroes to help fulfill wishes made throughout the multiverse. I love that idea. It's like, oh, I've got people are wishing these things and I can't make them come true, so I need some help here. Uh <laughs> And so I, I look forward to, you know, nostalgia. I'm not huge on nostalgia, uh, but I I love to see how things are updated to the new rule set. And so I will watch uh, with interest when as we see more information about this uh, adventure coming out. Yawning Portal sold really well from all the data we can find. Um, and it's something that, you know, keeps getting mentioned on our Discord and in other places. So I think this makes sense, you know, bringing back Sojkant and other older adventures. Um, there's there's reason there to do that. Uh, and I guess it ties into the Vecna somewhat in the 50th year. So it makes sense. Yep. Then come what we've all been waiting for. When will the new core books be out? Well, Player's Handbook on September 17th of 2024. The Dungeon Master's Guide surprisingly comes next on November 12th, 2024. And you were waiting for those new and updated monsters. You're going to have to wait until 2025 for that. Um, February 18th of 2025. I mean, we can make all the jokes we want, but, you know, I just go back to take the time you need. You want to give me the player's handbook mm -hmm. in 2025? Do that. Whatever works, you know, make these yep. make these good. Um, a lot of times these dates are the official kind of publication date, but that doesn't mean you won't be able to get your hands on it a little earlier if you go to certain conventions or things like that. So, um, you know, this this could change a bit, um, but it's a good it's a good initial date to use. Um, and I just, you know, whatever, make these make if this game's really going to last another 10 years, take the time you need to make it great. Yeah. On the Eldritch Lorecast, they were surprised that they wouldn't have them out for Gen Con or at least have the player's handbook out for Gen yeah. Con. And so I pointed out that, you know, in the past, even if a book was not due to be published, even two or three months after a convention, sometimes there would be copies for sale yeah. or to give away at conventions earlier. 
So I would not be surprised one iota if, although the official release date is September 17th, that in August, uh, the month before at Gen Con, if we don't see copies either for sale or floating around. Yeah, I think the question for D&D, for, for other companies, you know, you need to have them on the floor and sell them because that's yeah. a big part of your volume. Uh, for D&D, that's not true. It's actually a logistical nightmare to try to think of how to get copies out on the floor. So you may not even want to do that. It may not be worth it. But what you want to be able to do is hold that up, right? And give that industry message and, and kind of hit all the news angles and, and that kind of thing. But you want to be able to hold up the book, have a few, then that makes all the difference. And so, yeah, September 17th, you could probably do that. So that's what most people were probably most excited about. But for us, Teos, <laughs> it's all about the partnerships, right? It's all about the D&D &D baloney. And we also get, as a, almost as a sub-note, uh, you know, as, as an afterthought, new D&D partnerships. Um, you, you, you want your Converse? We've got your D&D Converse sneakers and other apparel. Looking forward to that. We get a Lego building set complete with minifigs. Uh, a few details were probably already shared online, but it sounds like it's going to be a very large, uh, both in terms of the number of bricks and the price that you will pay, uh, <laughs> where you can make a dragon around a castle set, maybe that won the contest. Not clear if there are others as well, but uh, if you're a Lego fan and you're a D&D &D fan, I think you've got a lot uh, to happen yeah. for you there. I saw today on the social media already a picture of a gelatinous cube and a minifig inside of it. And, and you know, Lego, yeah. this was a, a Lego post. And I'm like, oh, boy, you know, here we mm -hmm. go. Uh, so I'm excited about that because that's the kind of thing that gets in kids' hands, right? Kids go like, oh, uh -huh. cool, I want a castle and a dragon. They don't care what the brand is on it. But then they start asking, what is this brand? What's going on? Then they go to the store and they see the Converse. And what else might they see, Sean? Oh, treats from Pop-Tarts to enjoy during your game sessions. Uh, Pop-Tarts for the wind tails. That, that's really all I could say. Yeah, I mean, this would destroy D&D Bologna. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you can get the D&D the Pop-Tart in my hand, branded, and it's on everyday store shelves, uh, I will seed the, the the high water mark of D and D baloney to uh, the D and D pop tart, and I I look forward to doing that. I've been wanting to do that for years, so that's that's really exciting. I'm glad because this means D and D is working that angle, right? Of how do you reach out to everyday people and get them on board, right? You want the, the Saturday morning cartoon effect that we had as kids, right? You want that kind of a, a reach to be out there. Yep. As somebody who probably ate more Pop-Tarts than any other human being during my high school and college days, especially college, I've lived on Pop-Tarts. So I'm like 30% Pop-Tart anyway. So I cannot wait to see what uh, what they come up with there. Oh, yeah. And we heard from uh, World 20 that they have a partnership to bring a new character sheet for D&D with much improved functionality, visual layout, including how spells are displayed. This includes automation capabilities that reflect temporary play conditions, like bonuses to armor class. So for folks that were you know, wondering if they have their own tabletop, are they going to continue to partner? We heard last week uh, about Foundry 
And this week we hear about Roll20. So it looks like they are going to continue to support partners uh, with their content. Yeah, and for all almost everything we've talked about here, there are links in our show notes to all of these mm-hmm. stories. So you can read all about all the many innovations on Roll20. The uh, Vecna Eva Bruin gets a full breakdown. There's that history video. So you can get a lot of information on that and on this next bit of news, Sean. Mm-hmm. Now, normally this news would be the big news, <laughs> but yeah, what came before sort of overshadowed it. Uh, Humblewood, a game and 5e D&D setting created by Hitpoint Press featuring bird and animal folk has been added to D&D Beyond. Uh, the world of Everden focuses on the role of nature in the world, of being heroes and of building community. Uh, there is a video out there where the creators discuss these elements and how their world has had wide appeal, including to parents and to kids, even though that wasn't why they made the game. It wasn't made for kids, mm-hmm. but kids have been enjoying it. So you can get the campaign setting and adventure for levels one through five, all the setting and character options. There's 10 races and four subclasses, new backgrounds, feet, spells, magic items, and monsters. For a limited time, you can get that at 20% off on D&D Beyond. So hum- uh, Humblewood by Hitpoint Press has joined Layers of Etheris from Ghostfire Gaming and uh, Dungeons of Drakenheim from the Dungeon Dudes and Ghostfire as more third-party content coming to D&D Beyond, which answers a question many people had, which was, are they going to continue to partner yeah. with third parties to bring content? And I think it's safe to say the answer is yes. I think that the question that then remains is sort of how widely do they do this, right? Like, are we going to see a few a year? Um, you know, I think a couple a year would be great. I, I'm a little worried about too many. Um, mm-hmm. But I tell you what I would like to see is Esper Genesis, because mm-hmm. that would show the breadth of how you can grow uh, fifth edition to sort of a very different genre, right? Humblewood is like a different right. tone. Esper Genesis shows you how fifth edition can be a platform for sci-fi. And I think that sure. would be a lot of fun. Maybe a little harder to code on the D&D Beyond side, but once you do that, it would be just, I think, of terrific appeal to folks. It's such a well-designed game and setting that it would be, that would be really exciting. Yeah, that's true. So we will continue to keep an eye on that as well. Our next bit of news would be the most important bit of news, if not for the previous <laughs> two stories, because we got Hasbro's quarter four 2023 financial report, and we knew it was going to be rough, and it was rough. Uh, Teos, you want to take us through uh, yeah. all this not so great I'll, news? I'll try to break it down into to, to bits that make sense. So first, Q4. We've been reporting on quarterly earnings across the years, and it has not been pretty for the last two years. This time, it's a 23% drop in revenue for Q4. That's down $1.3 billion. So it's a loss of just over a billion. Um, Furthermore, they expect 2024 to be a hard year. So that's your snapshot of where we are for the quarter. Um, If you compare to last year, last quarter had a 129 million loss in Q4. So you're going from 129 to a billion, right? Mm -hmm. Really not great at all. And this is after all the cost cutting and the layoffs and all that. Now, of course, there's still costs. If you know how that works, you don't start saving money on layoffs for, for a really long time. Um, but it's still, it is, it is not great at all. Uh, if you want to take a crash course in how to make positive spin, read that investor report and the, the call, uh, uh, the, the investor call, 
boy, the job Chris Cox does to make this sound good is a plus. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> uh, he could lead troops into battle, that's for sure. Um, if we look at the year of 2023, for the year, we're now, because you can now, Q4 is done. That's the fourth quarter of the year. They're four quarters of the year. Now we can look and say, how did the year go? That was a 15% decline in revenue to $5 billion in revenue, which is down about $1.5 billion. Compared to the year 2022, and you had a $204 million profit despite sales being down, you were still overall doing well. So this is a big loss. Uh, the losses were largest, as we've seen before, with consumer products. So the toy side, they declined 25% or $126 million loss. And entertainment, which somehow still the sale of E1 keeps on showing up quarter after quarter. And, and I guess, you know, for the year, it makes sense. Uh, but that E1 sale is a $1.1 billion loss. Um, Wizards and D&D. So narrowing in on the part that we kind of care about. This gets hard to parse, but they said they saw 103 million quarter four profit from Wizards of the Coast and the digital gaming segment. Where does the, do those good numbers come from? Baldur's Gate 3 and Monopoly Go digital games. Mm -hmm. um, they, of course, expect that now increases will cool because those games are going to slow down. They'll still see sales, but it won't be as much as when they were brand new. The Q4 numbers are about a million lower than they were a year ago. Um, and I have a typo there. Uh, revenue for Q4 was 363 million for that segment. Um, for the year, Wizards and digital gaming were up about 7 to 10% from the 2022 numbers, depending on how you slice the segments, due to the two video games. They said Baldur's Gate 3 made about $90 million in revenue for 2023. They also said that tabletop gaming sales were near flat, down around a million uh, to a total of about 266 million. Now, this still doesn't tell you D&D because this is combining various things. Um, Magic the Gathering, focusing on that, including its digital sales like Arena, where you can play online, were down about 2% to 258 in Q4. Um, so this is all very confusing. If And you're trying to figure out, well, what does that mean for D&D that we love, and boy, what even is the D&D we love? Is it digital? Is it paper? Is it whatever? It's confusing. Um, they said in one part, D&D is up 54% in Q4, but that's including the video game. Um, what it actually looks like, it's 1% down for tabletop paper, Magic the Gathering, and D&D sales. There is a note that suggests that D&D dragged Magic the Gathering down, so D&D paper is likely down more than 1%. Wizards generated about a billion dollars in tabletop game sales for all of 2023. But we can take you back to our show three years ago, where Wizards celebrated being the first publisher to reach one billion. And they had 1.3 that year, right? So it, it is, it's not great compared to where they had been and, and what they hoped they would be today. Uh, even non-digital games in 2021 were, uh, or 2020, were 950 million, right? So, so we've, we've not seen any growth in that area that you would have wanted. Um, based on the investor slides and as noted by an eagle eye friend, it does appear that D&D Tabletop and Magic Arena are both around the same magnitude of revenue. And that might mean that D&D is in that 150 to 300 million range. I've in the past gone with about $150 million estimates. So, you know, th that is that is interesting. Um, 
And then there were some great call questions and answers that gave us some some really interesting insights, including the question of what's the game plan? You know, in the past, we've heard buzzes like it's digital or, you know, and it's hard to parse what that means. But here they really started to get due to answers to questions they got into. They really revealed the, their hand, I think. Um, so we know that a lot of the emphasis is around Baldur's Gate 3, and that's going to slow down. So they're expecting next year to be a slowdown. They got a specific question about D&D. And hey, wasn't D&D supposed to be your next big brand? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he goes, well, as a brand, D&D is up 75% for last year. OK, um, they're not talking about paper and tabletop there. Uh, they're talking about digital. Right. And he says, quote, we continue to think D&D Beyond was an excellent acquisition. It really is the way increasingly people are playing tabletop role playing games. I think it's an excellent platform for us to build upon and expand the ways that people can play. And then he mentions universes beyond. We're going to talk about more of this in a second. And then he adds what I think is the D&D plan in a nutshell, quote, Baldur's Gate 3 is just the first of several new video games that will be coming out over the next five to ten years that I think will continue to power that franchise, meaning D&D. And really, I think the three combined, continued innovation on tabletop, powered by D&D Beyond, Target Entertainment, working through partners in an asset light model, and then great video game content. I lost the count there, but somewhere those are three things, right? Uh, (laughs) Tabletop innovation, which is powered by D&D Beyond. Targeted entertainment, working through partners in an asset light model, and then great, great video game content through licensees and through own internal studios. I think the future is bright for that brand. So when you get to that question of why aren't they selling D&D, it's kind of because it's part of the only growth area and it's fueling it, right? So, and they see that as being a much bigger equation than D&D paper. So you, you never just sell D&D paper because it's a part of this overall large thing. How big? Uh, they said they still think it's on track to be a 500 million brand, you know, all of it, perhaps by 2027. And so that tells you your plan and your goal uh, all in one. Um, yeah. There was no mention of the movie, despite the fact that our friend uh, Dave Clark notes it was the third most watched movie on Paramount Plus ahead of all kinds of big names. Hasbro is doing a lot of cost cutting um, and clearing inventory and all these kinds of things. And the way I look at it, I'm, I'm, you know, only have so much expertise. This means they're running out of excuses, right? Uh, When you get to this year, fine. But next year, they're going to really have to start. They've done the things they've sold. They've cleared the inventory. They've become more efficient. They've laid off. Uh, Now the question is whether it works, right? So that I think will be the thing we get to watch in 2025. They, of course, expect to see D&D, on, D&D up because of the core books in terms of paper and D&D Beyond. But clearly, that's not what they're focused on, right? That's not the magic that makes these numbers work. It's the next video game. It's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the next thing, one of the things that was talked about was Universes Beyond, which is the Magic the Gatherings partnership with various brands, the Lord of the Rings magic set the uh, Warhammer 40K set. And there was an implication in an article on Polygon.com and ComicBook.com that with the success of those things within the magic arena, no no pun intended, that maybe that's where they will be looking to make more uh, both profit and brand recognition in D&D. Uh, 
So it could make sense if uh, they reached out to other folks, other IPs to make D&D themed games in mm -hmm. those spaces. Uh, what did you think about that? I mean, it's fascinating because they're talking about D&D. It came up in the context of D&D Beyond, right? So it's sort of this like mm -hmm. platform that we want to then launch other other expansions and, and maybe apply that. Um, for Magic, this universe is beyond where they bring Warhammer cards and Doctor Who and all of that. Those all work. And I think comicbook.com did a good job of saying like, well, if you look at all of these Magic Universe Beyond sets, there are already RPGs for those. Hmm. So what do you do? There's already a Warhammer RPG, already a Doctor Who RPG, already a Lord of the Rings RPG, already, a, you know, and almost anything you kind of think of, you're like, you know, I was like, oh, well, you could do Game of Thrones. Oh, wait, Song of Fire, Ice and Fire RPG. You could do, oh, Walking Dead. They, they did that for Magic. Oh, there's already an RPG, you know. So it's a little hard to think about what you would provide um, that would be big enough, hasn't already be, been done and would really draw an audience and sort of resonate. But I'm, I'm sure there are options there. Um, you know, would it sell is a good question, but interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that was our news for this week. We There are a couple smaller items that we will hopefully get to uh, next time. And with that, we will move on to our main topic this week, where we are continuing our review of the Shadow Dark role-playing game. We will continue to focus this week on the gameplay section of the book. So Teos, over the weekend, doing his due diligence as requested by our listeners, played another session of the Shadow Dark role-playing game. Teos, I, yeah, tell, tell you, us all about it. Uh, it was a blast. Uh, I played Shadow Dark with Megan J, and uh, you should absolutely find Megan J, who's on our Discord, uh, runs her own Discord, and you can fly, find Megan J on Start Playing Games. So Start Playing Games uh slash gm slash miss m-e-a-g-h-a-n-j ran a great game uh highly encourage you to sign up for her games uh she also runs a lot of free league stuff and other fun things um so i made a character very quickly using shadow darklings which is the official arcane library online character creator for shadow dark i had a goblin wizard WYSIWYG who had a, a dex of four and an int of 13, uh, but I survived somehow, hiding behind coffins, really. Um, we played the, the adventure from Arcane Library for level four characters called Eroding Isle of the Executioner. And uh, we had a blast. It, it really you know, comes off of this gameplay that we've been talking about and, and puts it into that, that larger context of, of, of the actual game at hand, right? And, and so what did I see? Um, you know, one game doesn't tell you everything, right? So I rolled for every spell casting check, I rolled like a 17 or higher. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I didn't fail. A, I was able to cast this. I cast magic missile at a, at a wraith. I don't know how many times in a row. And I made every check easily, um, help that I get advantage on it. But still it's, you know, it's just, it was, it didn't test that system of, well, you know, I only have a plus one and what'll happen when I fail my check? How bad will it be? No idea because I succeeded at every check. Uh, what does it matter if I have a dex of four? I don't know. I hid behind sarcophagi. Nothing ever came up to me and attacked me. But 
we had a lot of other funny things like the wraith drained con. And so I asked, cool, what does that do? Uh, and how do you get your con back? And it was like, well, you know, we had drained your con. So your con's down, your hit points are down. But how do you get it back? I don't know that it's in the book. Nobody could figure that out. So we just improvised as to when you get it back. Um, and there were a number, a couple of other things like that that were just sort of, you know, improvised, right? That whole rulings, not rules kind of mentality. Um, and, and it didn't damage play in any way, right? It's just sort of we all agreed that we didn't know and moved on. What did I love about the gameplay at a high level? And I'll talk about more of this kind of as we go into combat specifically. But um, that combination of that we've covered of being an initiative for exploring means everybody participates. Everybody's taking an equal turn of doing things, even if it's just moving around and showing off new parts of the map. Um, when you go into initiative, then you are doing quick play. And, and in exploring as well, it's all very quick. It drives a fast, continually moving forward game. And if you miss, it's not that big a deal because it's just, just sort of the equivalent of an at-will attack. It's a very simple thing, and you move on to your next thing. Um, and I didn't get to test my part of it because I kept making my spell, <laughs> spell casting check. Um, the fact that it's light like that means that there is very little struggle with complex game rules, right? So even mm. the Condrain make a decision and move on. It's not the end of time. It's not, you know, how does this feat interact with my, you know, I do extra damage when I do ice spells and I have 15 ice features and what, you know, like that kind of thing that you can get into like fourth edition and fifth edition. So, yeah. Awesome. How long was the session that you played? I think we did about three hours and we could have explored okay. some additional rooms, but I think we, we were kind of all pretty in character to where we decided to say, you know, we would leave. We found our goal. We would leave. We would not go explain the extra rooms and probably died. Plus, the whole setting was like nobody has ever come back alive from this. So we're like, all right, there could be some really bad stuff. Let's just book it and, and get back out before we die. Uh, there were also, I think, three wandering encounter rolls and only one of them triggered, which is in the boat. And I should say that was an interesting thing, too, is it started. The scenario starts outdoors and you cross water. Um, so the torch only came into play, you know, once we arrived in the island, uh, cause I guess it was nighttime, uh, cause we're smart that way. And, uh, and then inside, right. But, but, uh, otherwise it was just sort of outdoor kind of play, right? Okay. How many players were there? It was a pretty full party. I think we had five players. Okay. Plus our DM. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Sounds good. It sounds good. It sounds like it backs up sort of what we had been talking about before. And we'll talk more about gameplay right now. And you can add any of the insights that you might have gotten uh, during play. Last time we had started to talk about hiding and sneaking, but we sort of brushed over it really quickly. And I wanted to dig into this a little bit because hiding and sneaking and invisibility and vision and surprise are all related to each other in these fantasy role-playing games. And sometimes they are handled with great detail poorly. Sometimes they are handled very with very slight rules poorly. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to handle them well. And conversely, they can be so important because getting surprise in a game or being invisible or hidden in a game can make such a huge difference. 
that I wanted to take a look at what this game did. Yeah. And it started what I thought, hopefully, because I thought it was going to differentiate between hiding and sneaking, which I've never seen a game really do, mm. or at least do well. Because hiding could be one thing and sneaking could be something else. And there could be parallel rules for it. Uh, but really what we ended up with, because they try to cover everything in a very short amount of words here, is it's up to the DM. Right. You could make a you could make a dexterity check to hide, to sneak. Uh, but for the most part, it's whatever the party and the game master agrees to is what's going to end up happening. Uh, because it does try to say something like, I have to get to the right page here. Uh, it, it says like, you can't hide if you can be seen. But can you sneak if you can be seen? Right? Can you sneak up on something even though you're not hiding behind cover? Uh, and it so it, it instantly then turns into a well, we're just going to have to make it up as we go along uh, yeah. type of play, and which even, is which is OK. Uh, but it's just interesting that it was mentioned because it needs to be mentioned, but it really wasn't worked out in any yeah. way that solidifies the rules. Well, I, I didn't get to test it, but I took the invisibility spell wondering whether, you know, because it basically says, hey, for 10 rounds, you're invisible. And I was like, cool, what's invisible mean? Not really clear. So, okay, I'm invisible. You can't see me. Does that mean that I still need to make a dexterity check? Not clear. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but I could make noise, so maybe. Um, and, and then we didn't get to test it to see how it would work at this particular table. But it's that kind of thing that, you know, if you wanted to often be invisible and attack while invisible, spell cast while invisible, you know, what does that mean for gameplay? Yeah, it, it's not really particularly clear here. I, I think that... As abbreviated rules, I generally like these as general guidelines, right? That kind of idea of like, you can't do it when someone's just looking at you. That's just not how it works. But what's the concept on when you're distracted or not? Well, that's, that's all up to the GM, right? Mm -hmm. You got to come up with some, something that says, yeah, I think you can do it in this situation. And then you go from there. Yep. But if you are able to get up to an enemy and be undetected, then you have surprise, which means you have advantage uh, if you attack and you get a free attack before initiative is rolled mm -hmm. uh, for the combat. So yeah. that's yeah. the benefit of being something that we don't quite know how you can be. <laughs> yeah. So then as we started last week, we want to get it into the combat section, which is... Yeah, and I love the art, you know, so, like, oh, this yeah. is an example, right? The art here of, like, this giant crab attacking this adventure, right? Like, this is the kind of... That's what the game is is selling us as an experience, which I think it, it you know, it did pretty well during my two games that I've played. It, it felt like yeah. that kind of art was coming to life. Yep, I've never doubted the style, the art, and how all of that meshes together, and I think that's one of the strengths of this product is that it knows exactly who its target audience is. And as I said during during the last uh, segment, the, this game started with a community and then became a game rather than trying to build a game and then get a community for it, which is one of its most powerful strengths. 
So the combat section, we start by determining surprise. Is one side aware of another? Uh, if both sides are aware of each other, there is no surprise. And if one side is unaware, then there is. So after you've determined surprise, the surpriser can take a, take a turn before initiative is rolled if they uh, can get to their attacker or attackee. <laughs> If there is no surprise or what surprise has been uh, adjudicated, then you make an initiative check where the highest roll goes first between the game master and all the players. And whoever gets the highest, you then start with them and move clockwise around the table. Which begs my question, if you're playing at a table, do you specifically put the person who has the highest decks to the left of the DM assuming that they might be the person that goes first mm -hmm. and then you give everyone in your party the chance to go first. Do you specifically move the person with the highest decks away from the right side of the game master? So it's not, Oh, you, you go first and now the DM gets to go second. It, that would make, I think where that would make the most sense for me is that um, the D20 is such a big effect that I don't know that it's the person with the highest decks that's going to do that. But you probably want to put like the slower people to towards the end of the arc so that you're not kind of bumping them up. Right. Because what will happen is one player wins the role may or may not have the highest decks. And then from there on, you're kind of going around in a circle. And and I think that's where like like I mean, my character had a minus three penalty to decks. I, mm. <laughs> I did not yeah. go first ever. <laughs> right. So we were playing online, so there wasn't any table clockwise thing. We did it in order of our roles because there was no okay. seating position. And in that case, I was going last or next to last, you know, every time. And that made perfect sense. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. And then what's also interesting is, you know, you are all will already be in an order for exploration. And you kind of re-roll, not kind of, you re-roll initiative for combat kind of to shake it up and change things up a bit, right? To maybe mm -hmm. sort it slightly differently. Um, you know, is that, I think that's interesting. I, I do like it because it sort of, it has that sort of now roll for initiative feel, even though you've been in initiative. And so at first I thought, why are we rolling again? I'm like, well, no, but it is neat. It, it shakes it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't mind initiative that keeps things moving quickly. Mm -hmm. It's just... I, I know I've played with power gamers who are going to absolutely put themselves in order from highest decks to lowest decks around the table uh, just to try to keep the game master from going early in a round, mm -hmm. especially when uh, it seems like it could be deadly. Uh, getting attacked, you know, right away could put you into put you down quickly, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which then takes your turn away and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the next part of combat are the turns. On your turn, you can take one action and move. The movement can be broken up by your action. And rather than having a specific distance you can move, you can just move near. With Which is roughly 30 move. feet. Yeah. yeah, roughly 30 feet. Mm -hmm. uh, so what actions can you take on your turn? We are given a list. The list includes melee attack, ranged attack, cast a spell, improvise, or multitask. The melee attack is exactly what it sounds like. 
You use a melee weapon, roll a d20, add your strength modifier and your talent bonus. And if you are equal to or greater than the armor class you are shooting for, you have hit and you can do damage. Ranged attack, same same thing. Cast a spell. Casting a spell takes one action. And it says see spell casting on page 44, which we've already covered. And the, four, the fourth thing you can do with your action is improvise. Do an improvised action such as swinging across a ravine on a vine. The GM might determine it requires a stat check or an attack roll. I like that. I like how simply mm -hmm. it, it's put of just, you're going to do something else. You're going to do something not expected by the rules. Great. It's an action and you just do it. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing in this list is multitask. And I thought, okay, that's a multitask is going to be an action because it's co-equal with melee attack, ranged attack, cast a spell and improvise. But it's not. Multitask says... Characters can do small parallel tasks on their turn, such as standing up, speaking, activating a magic item, or quaffing a potion. This does not typically use their action. And I'm like, okay, cool. So that's something else. It's not an action. And then I started thinking, so is there a limit to the number of non-action things that you could do in your, well, on your and turn? And it doesn't seem there is. So I read this differently. Um, okay. But I agree that it's it's an open question. What I thought this was saying was these things individually don't usually use an action. If you do a bunch of them, then I can say that you're doing the multitask action. So drinking a potion is not an action, but if you wanted to activate a magic item and quaff a potion, then I might say you're multitasking. That takes your action. Yeah. And, right. and, and this is one of those points where, you know, two people who are used to role-playing games who have played a ton of role-playing games, who write role-playing games, <laughs> can read the same thing and come to two completely different yeah. uh, things. Because my my read of that is, it says you can typically do any of these things without using your action. So why would you not be able to stand up, speak, and quaff a potion and still use your action? And, and here's the thing that I find interesting, right? So in the example of play, which we'll get to, um, character fumbles around my backpack and pull out a spare torch plus flint and steel. Can I light it? You know, makes a check and then the next PC goes. So somehow all of that, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. was a multi task action. Or maybe that's just like, I don't know, interacting with your variant somehow or, you know, one, one or the other. It doesn't really seem like it's improvised, but I think that's probably what multitask is in this example of play. So you are drawing something out of your backpack uh and then lighting it one of those things might have been okay you're doing several so that's your turn yeah and this is the joy as well as the danger <laughs> of leaving things up to the dm yeah because when when the situation is dire you as the dm the game master might say okay i'm gonna let you pull your torch out and try to light it and also use the torch as an improvised weapon to hit because if you don't, your your whole party's going to die. Right. I'm going to let that happen. Then the next time, when it's maybe not so dire, you're like, no, you can't do that. And the players are going to say, well, I just did it last yeah. time. And and it becomes a, a point of tension, let's say. It doesn't yeah. have to be contentious, but it can be yeah. tension-causing. 
and, and that's clearly the side that this game takes is towards the side of your DM makes the call because, and, and you know, Kelsey is a great designer, right? Kelsey would, mm-hmm. could have said you can do two of these things. That's a multitask or three of these things. And I think Kelsey has, you know, I'm not, I don't want to imagine myself being her, but like has chosen not to do that. Right. This is probably sure. deliberate to say, you know, you make the call. Now, what we don't get is a little sidebar saying, hey, you know, how consistent do you need to worry about being or anything like that? Or what we'd call DM advice. Well, that isn't here. Right. And that's probably okay. But but maybe if you had a little space and you could do more, it would be good to have that. Right. Because I think those are the kinds of things that DMs hit as they run games a lot where they go, you know, if I give somebody a a little bit of a space here. Well, then next time they want that every time. Right. What do I do with that? Yeah. And, you know, that's what it comes down to, to for me with any game is inconsistency is fine until it's not fine. And you never know what the what that pressure point is going to be. You never know what is going to be the straw that breaks immersion, (laughs) that breaks the suspension of disbelief, that breaks what one person thinks of as a ruling. Another person thinks of as the gospel truth. And that's where the disconnect can happen. And sometimes it will never happen if you're with mm-hmm. the right group. Sometimes that's happens before the game even starts, as we have seen at some organized play tables where you sit down and you read the list of these are my rulings on these obscure or unclear points, uh, which yeah. can also be fun for some players <laughs> as you think about and debate these things and just an absolute mood killer for others. Yeah. So, and, yeah, and that it's, is it's. A place where Kelsey does put emphasis is early on that idea of like, you know, this is not an adversarial game, right? Right. You are working, you are all having fun together. The goal is fun. Time is spent on that to establish mm-hmm. that, right? Because these kinds yeah. of loose rulings were used all back in the day by people who wanted to test your metal and see if you were hard enough to beat my dungeon and stuff like that. And that was the worst. Yeah. For most of us, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I've never enjoyed it. Uh, and you see it across editions where DMs still show up with that noise. Um, yeah. You know, this game tells you not to do that. So in theory, you know, if there is inconsistency, well, it's inconsistency to try to make the game fun. And that mm-hmm. makes it a little better. Sure. Next section is on damage. So when you hit a target with an attack or a spell, you damage it. You roll the weapon or the spell's damage dice and add any relevant bonuses. And that damage is subtracted from a target's hit points. You can choose to knock a creature unconscious instead of killing it if you reduce it to zero hit points. Doesn't matter what kind of weapon, doesn't matter if it's a spell, you can just do it. And we have critical hits, where if you deal a critical hit when you roll a natural 20 on an attack roll or spellcasting check, If it's a weapon, it doubles the damage dice, as we mentioned before. And if it's a spell, you can double one of the numerical effects of that spell. I like that you can just choose, am I killing anything, am I not? I like that's better versus trying to say, well, but not with a spell or not with ranged attacking. Just let them do it. Um, Mm -hmm. We talked before about the numerical effects being sort of tricky for spells because a lot of them don't have that. Um, The... uh, the game can be pretty lethal, right? And and one of the things that happens is you can have very low hit points. 
um, I forget how many my character had, but you know, I had a con, I think of 11. So I had no bonus and I'm a little goblin. And so despite being four levels in, if something had hit me, not to mention that they hit me really easily with my super low armor class of like seven, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going down quickly. And, and so that, that capacity hurt is big. We, we could not rest in the scenario we played. And so we had these folks full of Condrain. And that was one of the reasons that, you know, when the DM was like, well, do you want to explore some additional rooms? We were not willing to take the chance for more XP because treasure equals XP. We're like, let's get out with the big treasure we got. And nice. After damage, we learn about terrain. Um, the uh, the rule of difficult terrain is in effect. It, you can move half your normal distance through terrain that hampers your movement. Um, you can't see a creature if uh, if you can't see a creature because it is, it is behind something. You can't target it. Okay, this is the odd one: attacking or casting a spell on a creature that is hiding at least half its body behind interposing terrain has disadvantage. And it uses the term hiding. Yeah. And, and so the, my first thought was, okay, so if it's hiding you wait, they don't no, mean hiding. The, yeah. The, it doesn't mean hiding. It just means yeah. standing behind. Mm -hmm. So you can stand behind uh terrain with half your body to give you cover. Uh, hence WYSIWYGs, uh, taking to the sarcophagi as a shield to save uh, yeah. him or herself from yeah. danger. I mean, it, it still would have hit me because my terrible armor class, but I just luckily was not the juiciest target that were right up on it. But <laughs> that's why I lived. There have been more creatures. Mm -hmm. I think I would have gone down. Um, yeah. I think this is all fine. I mean, that's that idea of, of sort of just being a little loose with it, right? If, if mm -hmm. you hide half your body, well, that's disadvantage. If you... Can't be yep. seen, can't be targeted. Just trying to make it simple. You're not worrying about corners and drawing lines and stuff like that. And I think that's fine. Um, similarly, morale, very interesting that it's just because a lot of old games tend to have extensive systems for this. And this just simply mm -hmm. says if enemies reduce to half their number or half their hit points, if it's a solo enemy, will flee if they fail a DC 15 wisdom check. And that's interesting because one is, you know, this is a very simplified mechanic. So, okay, fleeing. Mm -hmm. the, the first thing I thought of was sometimes I don't want to flee. I want to surrender or bargain or barter or call out for help or something else. And so it, it felt a little like kind of, you know, this is just the only thing that we're covering here under morale. Um, and I thought that was an interesting concept. What do you think? I... I dislike morale checks in general and have for several editions mm. simply because I don't know if the morale rule is there because it's a very deadly game. So we want to give the characters every mm. chance to survive and having a monster run away uh, will give them that chance. It takes away some of the agency of the game master who oh, there's 20 monsters and five PCs, four PCs are unconscious. The one just happens to take out the, the, you know, 10th of 20 monsters. Mm -hmm. Oh, so we have to make a morale check. And why are they running when there's only yeah. one left and they've got, you know, so, right. so that sort of thing, 
yeah, um, and comes the, into check. And I would I would have the monster flee if they made their wisdom saving throw. Because that <laughs> right. shows that they're smart enough to realize that yeah. they're in trouble and they should flee. Uh so you know, it's it's this thing that there are many times in this document that I'm looking at, which I love by the way. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong, I love it. <laughs> where I feel like some common sense things that didn't need to be said were said and some things that needed a rule were not included. And I would have left morale out completely, except the old school Renaissance, right? The old school games had morale. So we need to try to move them forward into the new school uh, versions yeah. of the old school games. I tend to think that, that what, you know, what I would like here, and then this is, I mean, I mean, another example where on the page, right, this is the smallest bit of text, right? It is oh, yeah. this tiny corner, 20 out of words, page, maybe is the size yeah. of my hand, right? Like, it is so small. And so like, you're trying to do a lot with little and, and I mean, yeah, God bless. This is so good for that. What I think mm -hmm. I would like to, to see is something and I don't know how I'd write it, no idea. But really something that I could say, if I'm in doubt, then here's a thing I could roll to to say, yeah, this monster is aware. It makes a decision based on where the battle is, what that decision is. Well, how's it going? Right. What's what to make sense? Right. Like in your example, maybe when you drop that 10th, they go, you know, we've taken some hits. How about we we ask for them to we ask for the PCs to surrender, you know, or we say, you know, it's been trouble for both of us. You're about to bleed out. We're probably going to murder you. But hey, I don't want to see another of my boys go down. Uh, you know, yeah. give me some gold right. and, and we'll let you go. Right. Just yep. something like that. Right. That there's a turning point. If you read Keith Amon's work, like amazing work to really dissect sort of what individual monsters might do to run right. away, to stand and die based on their ability scores, their powers, you know, all this interpretation. Uh, we write about it in, in, in um, uh, the Forge of Foes where we talk about running away and how to make it work because it's so hard to make it work. Um, that's, think, yeah, that's, that's the key, right? That's the key. It's for me, it's not fleeing. It's not morale. That's the problem. It's how do you, do you allow the player characters to flee? Mm -hmm. If they say we're fleeing, do you yeah. allow the monsters to do that? That's what I want from this game to tell me based on the, the rules that it's using. Do we yeah. just hand wave it and say, okay, you fled or the monsters fled? No, you can't catch them. No, they're not going to come back. So you, you've defeated them for yeah. the purposes of this adventure. I think um, this is a problem. You know, if you were in a urban thing and an outdoor thing, like, you know, we're out on the boat, that kind of thing, that becomes a little harder in the typical dungeon thing where you've got your torch your limited resources, your press, your luck of continuing or withdrawing. That's where I think this works a little better in that, like, for example, a game I played at Winter Fantasy had a monster flee. And we many of these monsters encounters could be more than we could take on. So when this monster mm -hmm. fled, sure, we could have chased after it, but we didn't want to take more resource loss either. So mm -hmm. we were happy to let it go away. Right, right. And, and I think in Shadow Dark, you can have a lot of that, too, where, hey, that thing wants to run. We don't get XP for killing it. We get XP for right. treasure. 
we're not going to run after that thing into another room with more stuff right so it's probably okay in that dungeon situation but uh yeah yeah, if you're in the outdoors or a city or something then then you get it with the same old DD problems of how does fleeing even work we talked about in forge of foes there you go (laughs) and now we get to the death section uh which is like not even a full column of this small uh book if you fall to zero hit points, you are unconscious and dying. If you gain uh, one hit point or more, then you wake up and are no longer dying. When you fall unconscious, a death timer starts. You roll a d4 and add your con modifier with a minimum of one. So at least a d4 plus one. You, uh, rolls, you roll it on your turn. You die in that many rounds unless you are healed or stabilized. When your turn comes around on each subsequent turn while you are unconscious, you roll a d20 on a natural 20, so a 5% chance. You rise with one hit point. It doesn't Uh, say if they rise with one hit point at the start of the turn or at the end of the turn which is a big deal well it's it sounds like yeah you roll the d20 on a natural 20 you rise with one hit point it doesn't say if you can take your actions yeah it doesn't say if you have to stand up but you know it doesn't Mm -hmm. say any of of those things so that's something that you as the dm and the gm and the players will have to discuss i will say i do love this like i think that Mm -hmm. actually knowing how many rounds i have is actually probably more exciting and better for Mm -hmm. fast gameplay than the three hits, three losses of, mm-hmm. of 5e. I've never really loved it, and I, I have trouble vocalizing but why, and I think this kind of is a bit of that answer in that even when you have one tick left, you might make the roll. Right. So people may or may not help you, even though they should. This gives yeah. you that clear thing. I am dead in two rounds. Do right. something. <laughs> like for, if not this me, round, next round. For right. me... D&D 5e's system works for that game because it is less deadly. So that bit of uncertainty gives the players a certain sense of sureness that, okay, we'll get there. And then they roll that natural one. And, you know, I've had more players die from that natural one on a death save than I have from any other type of... Uh, death in in D and D, yeah, or some damage uh, source that acts as two, right? right. And then you're oh yeah. oh oops yeah. oh the fireball went off oh oh our wizard cast it oh uh, but in this no like rule here this, for that which is interesting right yeah this more deadly game um c- can use that surety so you know exactly how long you have and there isn't. An accidental, like you said, there is no rule for getting hit while you're down. It's just you are still unconscious. Uh, the only, uh, you can stabilize a creature on your turn. Well, let me put it this way. An intelligent being can give first aid to a dying creature at close range. On a successful DC 15 intelligence check, the target stops dying but is still unconscious. So the mm-hmm. death timer stops. Doesn't say if it's an action. Doesn't say when you can do it. Um, mm. So it is interesting in that sense that it may be very easy to stabilize someone if you don't have to do it on your turn and uh, there are no drawbacks to failure then 
uh, since you're not wasting an action to do it, unless it is an action to do it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if the, forget if one of the examples of play covers it. My guess is it's an action, but yeah, that's a good point. It doesn't really break it down. And if it's an action, should that be in the list of actions? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah uh, what do you say, Sean? So the next sections are overland travel and downtime. Should we try to just quickly cover those and finish up yeah, the campus section? Let, let's let's do them them real quick. So with overland travel, it's sort of like resting, where you have a random encounter check every one, two, or three hours, depending on how dangerous the area is. Um, how far can you travel per day? You can travel up to eight hours per day. If you uh, try to go for, for go longer than that, you must pass increasing con checks to push further, although it doesn't say what happens, at least in this section, when you pass or fail those checks. Um, it the, the text assumes that you're going to be going on a hex-based map where hexes are six miles across. I assume that in later sections, we will get more description of this, how to map it, what's going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's a section about light during overland travel, where it says, if needed, roll a d6 times 10 for the minutes left on a light source. Hmm. Uh, but then we're told that there is rarely total darkness outside, even at night. So I, I'm having trouble reconciling. Are we switching from one? Where are we going away from the one hour equals one hour uh, real time light now? If so, why? Um, and do you actually need light while you're outside, outside of the shadow dark? Uh, I just, I don't know. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess if I try to put it together, it's sort of like, okay, you know, we start the day and we head out across the wilderness. Time passes. Mm -hmm. A thing of interest comes up. So we roll 1d6 times 10 to see how many minutes happen to be left on a light source. Though I, we don't know how many have been expended. But yeah, if it's if it's outside, then maybe we don't need a torch. It's you know, there's no dim light type thing. So I don't know that it right. matters. It's a little interesting, but I guess your DM could decide because, you know, rulings, not rules to do things like, you know, you're going to have disadvantage of that because it's dim enough or something. You know, it, it's it's an interesting question. And um, yeah. and I guess it's just GMs are going to have to find their their kind of approach that they like to use there you'd resolve the scenario and then you'd continue to go to time passes again and, and so on but uh yeah it's interesting and it it does it doesn't it, there's nothing kind of really prescriptive here as to how the gm should approach overland travel to make it exciting uh later we'll get tables and things like that but but there's nothing here kind of indicating how that plays out mm -hmm. yeah so in all of this i'm assuming that later on we're going to get more Mm -hmm. uh, there is a chart that talks about how long it takes to travel across a hex, a six-mile hex. Um, and it, it makes sense to a point because, you know, walking takes four hours to get across a six-mile hex. If you're mounted, it takes two hours to get across a six-mile hex. If you're sailing, it takes one hour to get across a six-mile hex. Now, if it's difficult to rain, it says it takes two times normal. All right, so it's going to take double the time if you're trying to go through difficult terrain. And then it talks about arduous terrain where it just says eight hours to cross. So difficult terrain, if you're walking, would be eight hours to cross a hex. Whereas arduous terrain is also eight hours to cross a hex. 
So I it, that just confuses mm -hmm. me a little bit. I I I don't know if I'm missing something or if I'm looking at it wrong. You know, my guess is this is supposed to be, you know, what we lack here are the words that would say these are rough guidelines. And and mm -hmm. and someone might argue, well, that the book told you that's the approach to begin with. So these are all rough guidelines everywhere in the book. But yeah, it's right. that kind of thing that I think you're just sort of, yeah, in this case they're the same, but they wouldn't be if you were sailing, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a loose uh, it's a loose code. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, navigation. If you are in unfamiliar terrain, you must have your navigator make an intelligence check when you exit the hex. On a failure, the group moves into a random adjacent hex. And I sort of like this, um, where it's very simple. I assume there's going to be something about navigation and a navigator later in the book. Uh, but you know, you you fail your navigation check. You think you're going into hex Q seven. You're mm -hmm. actually going into R seven. Uh, written rolled randomly. Uh, so I, I I sort of like that. I like the simplicity of it, and it's clear, simple, and potentially really fun. Oh, you thought you were skirting, you know, the swamp of dread, but you are actually knee deep in the swamp of dread, uh, thanks to your navigator. So. Then we get into downtime, and this is mm -hmm. a really interesting system. It's the kind of thing that I wouldn't have expected in a game like this. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And what we are told is you can choose a downtime activity in between adventures. Why does this exist? Well, one of the key reasons is to let you do something with all the coins you have beyond just buying gear, which eventually you've got the gear you need. So there is a downtime activity called carousing. And it lets you turn coin into XP. You put in a number of coins uh, and you all decide to everybody who's doing this just says, OK, we're going to put in some money into you know, a pot. Now we roll 1d8 plus a bonus that we get based on a table of how much we spent. So if as a group we spent 1200 coin, we gain plus five to our roll. We roll the d8 plus that bonus. It tells you what you get with a nice story angle. So like 10. An angry wizard casts a deadly spell at you, you know, while carousing, uh, but you reflected it off of your cup. Gain five XP and a luck token, right? So just a little color or something like that you can use as the basis. You could gain up to XP and a treasure, or you might get an enemy, and the lowest is two XP, so somewhere between two and six XP. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting, simple system, just a couple pages. Fun, what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I saw it and I was like, okay, this is Dungeon World. <laughs> uh, Dungeon World has a move yeah. called carousing, and it's it, I, I I thought is a direct reflection of that, whether accidentally or on purpose. It, it, I and I think it's fun. I think it's mm -hmm. cool, and you can do some fun things with it. I could see, like I said, the community is the strength of this, and I could see the community coming up with hundreds of charts yeah. uh, of different things that could happen and fun adventures and, and sidetracks and, and stuff yeah. coming from that. And that's the thing that I think would be the most, you know, you don't want to say, okay, you rolled a 10 again, another angry wizard did this, but use yeah. it as the basis, right? And that's that kind of thing. It doesn't sure. super tell you these kinds of things, but, but that's what makes downtime fun. Um, we also get a piece on learning where you can learn a new skill. So you have to find a capable instructor willing to teach you. Nothing's really said about how that happens. You just got to find some way to do that. Um, you can't typically learn a class's or ancestry's unique talents, but you can learn a new language or something like how to ride a sandworm using a harness. 
you might be able to do new actions or do an action with advantage. Work with the GM, basically. And to learn it, so you decide what you want to learn. Your GM approves it. You come up with kind of that decision. Now you make an extreme or DC 18 intelligence check to succeed. If you fail, this is nice. You can try again next downtime, right? Next time in between adventure and the DC lowers by one step. So eventually you're going to nail this, right? Even if initially it's very hard. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah. And then we get one more thing about gambling. So you can gamble and it gives you a sample game called Wizards and Thieves that, uh, provides you for a way to play out a gambling scene. And it's a, you know, it's a roll 3d6 add to the pot winner take, you know, this it, it's, it's cool enough. Um, you know, something fun. Yeah. You can make your own again, going back to the community. And the last thing we get in this section is an example of play where we have four players in a GM uh, talking through a session. Uh, there's also a YouTube site for demos of gameplay. And it, it is helpful. I like these examples of play. Sometimes these this is the first thing I go to read to see if they're being truthful with me uh, and if it matches the rules I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it it uh, you know, it shows how the gameplay should go, but from exploring to then going into combat. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. So that closes mm -hmm. out the gameplay section, um, which is, you know, at this point, not quite half the book but close to it uh and and so you might be thinking whoa how is that possible because we've covered so many topics about play but we're the next part is a gm section which mm -hmm. kind of builds on it and we'll see that and and that gm section is deceptively large because it includes a whole bunch of tables before it gets to monsters and treasure and closes out the book yep yep so we will continue our look uh in in a later episode so with that though i want to thank everyone for listening I want to thank our patrons, especially, who help us out by uh, backing us on Patreon. Thank you so much, our Master of Dungeon supporters, our Master of Realm supporters. Thank you. You are in our show notes and in our hearts. And our Masters of the Multiverse, well, y'all are on the air right now. Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Lou Anders of Crazy Wolf Studios. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette. Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at nerdronomicon.com, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Mike Olson, Mighty Zeus, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna, neither Teos or I can say your last names, they won't say. Trace, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, Xavier Wasiak, and Chris Weber. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, you I think it's Webster. Help. Oh, And I want to say, say a special thank you to Vladimir Prenner, who has been helping okay. us with uh, making our process for creating the MP3 file for the podcast faster. And it's been really awesome. Um, so if you are interested in that on our podcast site, we have uh, links to where you can see that tool and use it for your podcast if you make one. Thank you so much. And if I said Chris Weber, I meant Chris Webster. So uh, sorry about that. You can become a patron of the show like so many others by going to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. 
and helping Teos and I update our water uh, budget. If you get a chance, you can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever or wherever you listen to this podcast. And you can subscribe to us via YouTube. Even if you don't listen to us there, if you just click that subscribe button, it really does help us out. So Teos, where can people find your work? Find me at alphastream.org. Uh, from there, you can get to everything I do. Sean, where are you hiding these days? I am on all the socials at Sean Merwin, and the podcast is on all the socials at Mastering D&D. So we've gone through the game side of Shadow Dark. We're about to go into the GM side. So what are we going to do now? Well, I got to make a rogue so I can test out this hiding business and the sneak attack. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. So I'm making my next uh, Shadow Dark character. So that'll tie me up for the next 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know what, Tails? I'm just straight up carousing. Mm. Always be carousing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.